Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. You've tuned into a Bully Pulpit special series for Symposium One, which the Hebrew Union College convened in New York City in November of 2016. Symposium One was organized around the theme of crafting Jewish life in a complex religious landscape. We at the Bully Pulpit had the privilege of interviewing some of the outstanding thinkers who participated in Symposium One, and we think you'll enjoy the conversation. We have the pleasure of having a conversation today with Dr. Neil Levin, who is the artistic director and the editor-in-chief of the Milken Archive of Jewish Music. Dr. Levin is also a professor of Jewish music on the faculty of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America here in New York, and he teaches graduate courses on the history, development, and repertoire of synagogue music, as well as the cantorial art, Yiddish and Hebrew folk song, and the music of modern Israel, not to mention the music of the American Jewish experience. It's a big brief, and it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Levin. It's good to be here. I want to start off by giving you an opportunity to describe what the mission of the Milken Archive of Jewish Music is. Well, the Milken Archive was founded around 1990 with the original mission was to produce 20 CDs, which was all we thought, or all that the foundation thought, rather, uh, was necessary to give exposure to the full array of music of Jewish experience that had been composed in the United States. We're leaving out Canada, Europe, Israel. This project so is called a, the American Experience. Ah, so it's distinct, distinctly American. Yeah. Okay. This in project. the United States, yes. Right. And it was that way from the beginning. Originally, it was called the Milken Archive of American Jewish Music. I finally persuaded them to remove the American because, frankly, it's silly enough, the term Jewish music. I don't like it. I don't use it. I won't use it. That's music of Jewish experience or music, music of, of Jewish Jew- connection or mm-hmm. music of Jew- related, Jewishly related music or whatever it is. I just finished speaking about how music isn't Jewish because it can't be because I don't know any notes that have a Jewish parent or went to <laughs> went to conversion. And that's the only way something can be Jewish. So it's not the music, it's the association. Originally, the foundation thought that would be adequate. Well, when I got on board and assembled an editorial board, we, we said right away, this has got to be many times as big, and let's take three years. We took three years. I researched for three years possible repertoire from which to choose. This is for the original CDs? Yeah. Um, we, we have recorded 130 CDs worth of music. And that's a selection from what could have been, you know, several thousand CDs. Not that all of the music would be good, but at least twice this much would also be good. Because we're talking about all genres. Sacred, secular, folk, classical, which is the biggest surprise. An entire vast repertoire of classical music that is Jewishly connected, Jewishly inspired, that is intended by composers as music of Jewish experience. And of course, the music of the synagogue, Orthodox, conservative, reform, this era, that era. So is this an ongoing mission you're still doing? We're not recording at the moment anymore. We only have so many years. I don't know of anyone who can take over for me. I have not been able, this has nothing to do with the Milkenach, it has to do with Jewish Theological Seminary or in general. I've never been able to find a protege who would be able to take over what I do. And and the few, let's say two, three, four times I had a student who at least I wanted to go on and get a PhD in sacred music. Listen, they got cantorial jobs. And they said to me, where am I going to have a job? And they're not wrong. So if I had uh, another recording 
resumption of recordings, I would not want to keep it to this American experience because one could go on forever with that. Right. We have not touched the music, the music of modern Israel. And the music of modern Israel, in all of its forms, in all of its eras, in all of its styles, I think is the first priority. If, if I were to seek funding from other organizations because Milken Foundation has done its job. I want to go back to the fact that you spoke about the breadth of the music covered in the Milken Archive, going all the way back to colonial America. I've read a wonderful article about you in the New York Times. It's already a number of years old now, perhaps from 2003. It captures a little bit of the magic and also the challenges of rescuing, as it were, music from pre-recording eras. So you have actually done that work. Share with us a taste of what that's like. Actually, with the colonial era, you can go to Sharit Israel today, the this Spanish is, and Portuguese city. Here in New York City. New York. And it, they're singing exactly what they sang in the colonial period because they have been all about preserving but That's part of their precision. identity as that's a synagogue. The, that's what you would call their identity, yes. Now, is that a written tradition or an oral tradition? On that well, part? it was an oral tradition, of course, but by now, I mean, I've written it down so <laughs> so my students could do it at a... Right, we we did a colonial service. The tradition in its bulk has been oral. Well, uh, yes, until until the 19th century, the Western Sephardi or Amsterdam, those are interchangeable terms, the Western Sephardi tradition or the Amsterdam, it's the same thing. In the 19th century, its branch in London got written down with harmony. With, with an attempt at harmonizing for the first time. I think it was for the first time, in an organized way, and a, a book. So, I mean, one can get that book. I mean, I'm sure it's in the library here. I hope it is. So from the perspective of rescuing, which is the word I use, yeah. for Shirita Israel, it's, uh, it's not so bad because it's, it's, it's not, you don't have to rescue it. It's already they're right. preserving it. There, but what, what about these? Even contemporary, even 20th century things, I mean, things that get lost. I played an example today for the symposium of a piano concerto that was composed here in New York by a composer named Jacob Weinberg, who was one of the group of the Russian national Jewish composers, the Gesellschaft Jewish Volksmusik in St. Petersburg and Moscow and so forth, who from 1908, when it was officially founded, until a year or so after the Bolshevik Revolution, when it kind of just fell apart, these composers invented classical music, Jewishly related classical music, mm-hmm. invented it. Literally did not exist. Only one such piece in the entire 19th century and it's by a non-Jew, and that's Max Bruch's Kol Nidre for cello and orchestra. And one opera, La Juive by Halevi. That's it. That doesn't mean that some cantor didn't try to write a string quartet, but we don't know about it. All right, so Weinberg, I knew of this piano concerto through various research, but I didn't have the orchestration, which is the concerto. It's only in commercial music that someone else orchestrates someone else's music. In, in Broadway, which is an art form, but it, it's commercial art form, I don't think there is such a Even Leonard Bernstein didn't orchestrate his own shows. Mm. But he wouldn't let anyone orchestrate his classical music. Mm-hmm. No, those, there, there were two famous orchestrators. I mean, the big ones, Bennett, Richard Russell, or Robert Russell, because there was, there was a Richard Russell and a Robert Russell. And I, one was, was the orchestrator I'm talking about, Bennett, and the other Hershey Kay. And everybody, whether it was Rodgers and Hammerstein, or so it's a different world. Film music, I, nobody orchestrates through except for Bernard Herrmann. I didn't have the piece, basically. I just had the piano part. I started to put things together. I was able to guess from research that it was sitting in the basement of a library in Haifa. Wow. Why? Because there was an organization in Chicago 
called Amli, Americans for Music Library in Israel. That was the brainchild of one man, Max Targ, who his business was, I think, band instruments and so forth, and he gave Israel anything they wanted for free for children's orchestras and bands and whatnot. And he was wealthy, became a wealthy man, and he founded Americans for Music Library in Israel and set up the library in Haifa of Israeli composers. Every Israeli composer is represented. In addition to Hebrew University, fine, but that's this is Haifa. You don't have to go to Jerusalem for it. This was before the era of fax and... Right, right, right. He also offered a complete set of Israeli published music. There were two main publishers, IPO and IMP. One of them I don't think exists anymore. I don't remember which it is. But all, you know, all the basic... Every composer from the 19th, from the Yeshuv to the present time, a complete set with new replacements, new uh, additions every year to any public library or school that wanted it for free in the United States. And guess what? Hardly no any, no Jewish it. organization wanted it. It's pretty sad. The Chicago Public Library took it because he was a Chicagoan. But it's, I mean, it's quite a disgrace. But, and I figured, well, Max Targ's thing, maybe in the Haifa Library. And then I did some more research and letters and so forth. And sure enough, I'm convinced that it's sitting there. So, uh, uh, I contact. Well, the Haifa Library is only open between two and four on the Tuesdays library. and Thursdays, <laughs> and the library, and they don't have an archivist, and the librarian refuses to get it for us. She refuses to go down. It got to the point where we said, okay, you know what? The Milk Foundation can afford to pay. Right. So supposing we pay for someone to sit at the desk while you go downstairs. <laughs> Wouldn't do it. At that point, and I had somebody in Israel. Raymond Goldstein, marvelous musician and, and orchestrates, and he's the arranger for the choir at the Great Synagogue in, in Jerusalem. He teaches at the Rubin Academy. I mean, he's just this all-around marvelous fellow as well as musician. And I said, do me a favor, we'll, we'll pay you. Go to Haifa and see what's going on. Come here. I think he made two trips for nothing to Haifa. It boiled down to the fact that we had to hire a lawyer and threaten to sue the municipality of Haifa. Because they weren't doing their service. Right. They weren't fulfilling. The municipality of Haifa owned the library. <laughs> and only then did they back down. First, to put obstacles in our path, they wanted evidence that we had a right to have it. So now I had to find Weinberg's son, who's gone now, but in the year of 1998, was still living in Brooklyn. He was very old, so I said, yeah, I'll sign anything you want. And then, so then we got the piece. Before we recorded it with the Barcelona Symphony Orchestra. So it was what you thought it was. You and managed was finally to get it, it yeah. and, you, and then you... And when it comes to cantorial manuscripts, even in the United States, let alone from Europe, it's a major task because you don't know what the handwriting was. I mean, there are experts who know Mozart's handwriting, Beethoven's handwriting. So you can tell if something's a forgery. It's, same in the, it's like the art world. The most important cantor of all times in terms of composer, cantor-composer, Solomon Zoltzer in Vienna. Orthodox, Eastern European, Western European, doesn't matter. Everything became known as Zulzerized or pre-Zulzerized. <laughs> right? I'm a kind of expert on Zulzer. I'm writing a book. I've been doing it for years now. I mean, it's two-volume work on, on Solomon Zulzer. There isn't one, believe it or not. It's like saying there's no book about Mozart. There isn't. The problem there I have is that not only don't we have, have not, we've not been able to find very many personal letters, official letters, yes, but personal letters, no. But the worst part is that there's no one who knows his music handwriting. This museum in Hohenems, Jewish museum, a Jewish museum in Hohenems, Austria, in the state of Vorarlberg, one of Austria's nine states, spent ten thousand dollars with money for them. So they bought a trove of manuscripts that said Zulzarm from some dealer in in, in uh, Amsterdam, and they brought me out there to take a look at them. I had to say to them, you know, 
What makes you think these are in Zoltzer's hand? One I caught right away, a fragment. I said, didn't you notice that it says St. Gallen? That's a town in Switzerland across the border, but still part of that cultural region. Obviously, the choir master there was giving this to the choir, and he, he wanted them to know who wrote it, who was composer. So he writes Solster. That doesn't mean it's Solster. We don't know what the what his handwriting is, so I can't authenticate anything. I mean, there's no one in the world who knows Solster's hand because none of his manuscripts have been found. That is to say, have been found that we know right, are his manuscripts. No uh, you have these kinds of problems. There are composers whose handwriting we know, or the copyists we know because there are certain people right. we can famous as copyists. Certified copies that we can yeah. Get, yeah. Uh, there's one in Chicago. I take one look from here, from, from 10 feet away, I'll tell you that's Rudolf Beck. And then, okay, we know Rudolf Beck copied most of so-and-so's uh, compositions. Right. So you have something to go on. When it comes to Ashkenazi synagogue music, it's about 50% historical musicology. It's, it's, really, it's really four or five fields. That's why I don't have any protégés. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's historical musicology, it's also ethnomusicology, whereas other areas are only ethnomusicology. This is 50-50, roughly, and you have to know both fields. And then, of course, it's liturgy, sure, and it's Jewish history. You have to know all of that. Whereas if you were going to, let's say, the music of Yemenite Jewry, but that's ethnomusicological completely, because it's the fact that people have written things down to preserve it, that doesn't change the fact. It's not composed that right, way. It's oral, yeah. But, I mean, Zulzer, Lewandowski, all the great cantors, Josselo Rosenblatt, these people in, in the United States, I mean, they took pen and paper. And so that's become, that's what we call historical musicology. Right. Whereas, on the other hand, you have them incorporating tunes from oral tradition, then the question arises, was that, did he make up that tune, or was that a known folk tune? Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. So let, let me move to the topic of musical influences as, as part of a story I want to lay out for you to comment on. This 2003 New York Times article about you in the Milken Archive, which I cited before, it starts off with two anecdotes. One anecdote or description is of the fact that colonial American Jews hired cantors long before they hired rabbis. And the second one they point out is that much of the music that today we regard as traditional is in fact very, very recent music because much of that older music has been lost. The argument of the author of the article is that these appear to be contradictory, that on the one hand we, we value music very much, and on the other hand we lost the music, and if we valued it so much, why did we lose it? That's the implication of the article as I read it. I see it differently. I think what it says is that music is tremendously powerful and central, so much so that we're constantly replenishing it and looking for it in different sources, and it's changing, and we invest in it. Your position is the correct position. <laughs> I, this is great. This is um, <laughs> Justice Scalia used to occasionally say, off the bench, well, it's just my opinion, but it's the correct opinion. Yes, 
No culture can stay static. Culture, high culture, is like romantic love. It can grow or it can die. There's no in-between. With regard to the first point about the colonial period, the first rabbi in the United States, or North America, was not until about 1840. The reason given by historians who should know better used to be frequently, no rabbi wanted to come, would come to a wilderness like America, where is it? It's not true, it's the opposite. Because communities in the Caribbean had rabbis. Right, right. It's the other way around. Colonial Jews didn't want rabbinical authority in their daily lives. They certainly didn't want, just as later on, Jews from Eastern Europe did not want the repeat situation that most Americans don't realize of the rabbinical tyranny of a rabbi of a city. Right, right. And so forth. And their willingness to exercise uh, yeah. uh, temporal power. Right, yeah. exactly. So colonial Jewry was a very interesting thing. In their synagogues, they wanted everything to be more perfect than perfect in terms of tradition. So perfect that, yes, they brought cantors from Amsterdam here to make sure that the reading of the Torah, because in the Western Sephardi tradition, only the Chazan reads from the Torah. That's not entrusted to anyone. And to this day, the first thing, if you go for an audition, if there's an opening for a Chazan at the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, the first thing they're going to ask you is to do the Torah reading, because only you can, you can be allowed to do I'm it. I'm glad to know next time I sign up. Musaf? Rabbi does Musaf. It's not important. It's Musaf. I'm except on Rosh Hashanah. I'm not talking. Right. But on Shabbos, on Shabbat, Cantor doesn't even do it. That's how fast it really is legally required, so fast lickety-split. Right, right. Same with Kol Nidre. We were recording in London. I brought Cantor Ira Rhodes, fantastic. And he's Ashkenazi, so he has learned every aspect, not just the music, but the vocal production mm -hmm. and the history from his predecessor, uh, Cardozo. I brought him to London because my chorus was in London to record the whole colonial CD. So... One day, at the end of the day, I said, oh, Ira, just put on Kol Nidra for us. It's a totally different, no, sure. it has nothing to do with that. And it's done very rapidly and very inconspicuously, just as a legal obligation, right. you know, before anyone it's gets... Not, it's, not, it's not infused with the pathos. That no, we, it doesn't have the emotional attachment that, that because of the music right. that it took right. on It's the here. music that's the pathos. It's more totally than, the music in right, Germany. It has nothing to do with... None nothing of us is moved by the idea no. of giving up our vows and... Orthodox Jewry in Germany. That would be sort of my model if there, to, <laughs> if there were a German Orthodox sitting out today. Our audience can't yeah. see you with your bow tie and your uh, horn rim glasses, but yeah, we, we get the picture. You know, I mean, I want to go a different place every week, but the Frankfurt German Orthodoxy, with its dignity that rivaled classical reform, right. uh, with its music, with the choir that the rabbi insisted come back from Mincha on Shabbos. <laughs> he said, it's not a service, it's not Shabbos without the choir. Anyway, they didn't do Kol Nidre until 1930, after Kristallnacht, the few that were left. They didn't do Kol Nidre at all? They, 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 they did it. Other after. words to it. The oh. same way classical reform did in the United States. So when people laugh at classical reform, which is laughable until you understand the context of history, like everything else in of history, course, right, like everything right. in history, the TV of the uh, 1950s laughable, too. Right, right. I mean, and I don't mean in a good way, in a, in, a, in a primitive way. Classical reform wanted to do what the mission of liberal progressive Judaism defines as understanding the world and ourselves as Jews in light of the best 
of Western classical intellectual tradition, and it should say cultural tradition too, and that's what they mean. So you had Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata with different words uh -huh. all over the United States throughout the 19th century and well into the 20th, and I bet you there are one or two synagogues, I'm sure of it, in Mississippi or, or somewhere, who right. still do it uh, on Colonel Night. Right. They did as of 12 years ago, that I know for a fact. Wow. You see, we laugh at it, but there weren't any good composers here for, for the synagogue. This represented what David Einhorn called when he said German should be the language of prayer, the highest cultural achievement so far of Jewry. We have to understand in that context. So for Kol Nidre, that was forbidden. And by the way, I think we should do away with the words altogether now, in, in Orthodoxy too. Because they don't mean anything from a, from a religious yes. perspective. We don't actually It's a believe, legal formula. Right, we don't actually believe we're giving up well, our vows and we don't actually... No, I'm not saying that. But legally, I think we are. We, we're saying... Don't I mean there's don't the hold, don't hold me to it. Don't me to it. Well, because we can't always live up to it. Yeah. The base, the first rule is not to make vows. I mean that's right, the story of right, right, sure. of Jephthah, right? right? right. But Jephthah, that's right, that's right. right? That the, he shouldn't have made such a vow, yeah. but he also shouldn't have been such an idiot, such an ignoramus, the, 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 as not to note that for one shackle he could have gotten out of the vow. Uh, Yiftach is a biblical character who makes a promise to God that he will sacrifice the first thing that comes uh, out of his tent should he win a battle. And the first thing that comes out of his tent is his daughter. And so he's forced into human sacrifice, uh, which of course is against Jewish law. And so it becomes this terrible contradiction. The point being, don't make vows, especially, not even don't make vows in vain. Don't make vows, period. Yeah. And Orthodox Jews today often say, if I promise to they say, Belineder. Yeah, we believe no that. Promise. No promises. No, no, I, 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 I promise, but I don't vow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And by the way, Bat Yiftach, the interesting thing is whether it happened or not is not the issue. Like, it's considered this is in the book of Judges and consider it a work of literature. Yes. As a work of literature, did he, sack, did he eventually kill his daughter or not? That's the question. Now, the interesting thing is Handel wrote an opera on this. You know how many classical pieces of music, Jew and non-Jew, like there are on the story of to, to, to Jephthah's daughter, more than 100. Wow. It's amazing over the well, centuries. It is yeah, I know. There's somehow this story grabbed it's, it. It's grabbing, but it hasn't come in the in the canon of uh, of all the things that we could uh, draw on. We draw on the Akedah, we yeah. draw on Genesis, we right. but this has slipped by. Well, we thought I, it has, but evidently I, Yeah, to musicians were fascinated by it. I don't know why. Now, over 100, we recorded the first recording of a symphony by a fantastic composer, once very well known, Ernst Toch, came from Germany with all the emigres in Los Angeles in the 30s. Oh, right. And this in Los Angeles, I know I'm getting ahead, but I'm going to come back to this. Okay, okay. Remind me to come back to the, because there was somebody who should be remembered in Los Angeles. His name was a rabbi, Jacob Zonderling. Jacob Zonderling is, the, his name adorns our library, a room in our library, uh, Jacob, Jacob Zonderling. Jacob Zonderling was a chaplain in the German army in the First World War. First World War. There were 12 Jewish chaplains, 12 rabbis in the German army. There were over 200 about 250 in the Austrian-Hungarian army. Uh -huh. And he came here in the 1920s, and he was the rabbi of a synagogue that doesn't exist anymore. I remember the whole name, it's Fairfax Temple. Then it had its other name, its subtitle was actually more important, Some, something along the lines of Society for Humanistic Judaism. Oh, yeah. Okay, he was not a member of the union mm -hmm. because it wasn't allowed to be because it's a human, yeah, that's right. At he, that time. It still isn't. Humanistic Judaism is excluded from the no. Judaism, as far as I know. 
At that time, it was out of the question. Anyway, Rabbi Zonderling was this highly cultured man. And he went to every one of the musicians from Europe that nobody knew about here, including Arnold Schoenberg, because in 1933, Schoenberg was not famous here. This is hard to imagine, isn't it? Because in 1923, he was the most famous icon of modernism, right, modernism in Europe. Yeah, right, right. Nobody knew who he was, but Zonderling knew. And Zonderling went to him and said, uh, look, Kol Nidra is nonsense, but there is a connection that I want to keep. So he said, will you, it's 1938, will you write a completely new Kol Nidra, the way you, do whatever you want. No singer, chorus, symphony orchestra, and narrator, and Rabbi Zanderling will be the narrator. So it's not intended for synagogue. Synagogue. Yes, this is the amazing thing. It didn't work out that way. Zanderling intended it for his synagogue on Erev Yom Kippur, 1938. Schoenberg did it. Why did he do it? He, Schoenberg had never been in a synagogue in his life. He did not even know the words Kol Nidri. He had never heard of it before. He was completely, totally, I mean, his wife was Jewish and all, but they had nothing to do with it. And he was uh, he wasn't even a Jabotinsky Zionist, as I would have been, and still am. He hated the Zionist movement because he said so. Why? Because it was democratic. <laughs> he said, he said because Herzl could have accepted Uganda, which is also wrong. Right, right, right. And it wasn't even Uganda. We don't know where it was. Okay. But the bottom line, he said, but he had this passion in him for a Jewish state. That he did. And some of the things he wrote in his rather absurd private writings, I've come to agree with, actually, such as stop the fight against anti-Semitism. Put your efforts into this. You're not going to win the fight anyway. So Schoenberg said he would do this for one reason only. He would bring him into contact with wealthy people in the synagogue who would, would put up... Him. Oh, no, no, this was totally unselfish. Who would put up bonds for, Israel. F- for people... For, for, this was 1938. To get people out of Germany. For, to oh, get to, Jews oh, out of Germany. Oh, oh. He had several colleagues in Germany. For refugees, I see. Who, the only way you could get into the United States in the 1930s as a Jew, and it's not just as a Jew. I mean, it's not anti-Semitism. It's anti-lots of things. Anyway, he figured if he meets, meets the right people, because a refugee had to have um, somebody to put up the equivalent of 50,000 a day. You know, all kinds of affidavits he needed that the person wasn't a communist, that he wasn't a, a Nazi in disguise, that he wasn't that. Okay. So he thought he could get the right people, and that's why he did this thing for no money. It was totally unselfish. So he, so he recomposed... He started from new, scratch. He sent new. letters to all kinds of people. He got the melodies from Kol Nidra. You know, you, you have to, it's a strain to hear them. And there it's Schoenberg's music. It's a, it's a great work of art. Rabbi Zonderling, in his naivete, thought that it could become a, a synagogue. synagogue, a synagogue uh, he wrote piece. the Temple Emanuel afterwards. He said, are you kidding? Right. <laughs> he, said, well, he said, okay, supposing we make an organ reduction. We said, understand Because they did it with symphony orchestra at... Yom Kippur Eve services at the Ambassador Hotel, oh my. the ballroom where Robert F. Kennedy was, was later shot. Because yeah. that's where the, the Yom Kippur services were. And anyone was free to come. I looked high and low. I said, there must be, because we recorded the piece that had never been recorded in the organ version that Schoenberg later said, okay, now you can use it in the synagogue. And he made an organ version. And we were the first to, and he never recorded, recorded the BBC singers. I brought in Avner Itai, the best, not the best Israeli choral conductor, one of the greatest choral conductors in the world, but he's an Israeli, he's 82 now, to conduct the premiere of the piece. The reason I bring this up is that everybody tried in different ways to get rid of Kolnid's words. And what the German Orthodox synagogues did, and the German 
counterparts and Viennese counterparts to conservative synagogues, they put different words to exactly the same piece, cantor and choir. Mima Amakim, the, the psalm, either in German or in Hebrew, was con continually so all over Germany and Austria until the very late 30s, when things got bad, just to show them. They, they, some Orthodox has put back the words. Or they had new poems written, Kol Zisrei. Mm -hmm. Or they used the first, because people like to hear the words Kol Nidre, and then went on to a totally different text. So in a way, what they were doing wasn't different from what classical reform did. Right. Anyway, mm -hmm. Now, to return what you said about so colonial Jewry, yes, Jewry didn't, that's true. That article was correct. They didn't want rabbis here. But cantors, just as in Amsterdam, that was an invented tradition, basically. Right. And they brought cantors from North Africa who had who had a connection to Spain to teach them. Now, America, uh, colonial, uh, American colonial Jewry brought cantors from Amsterdam and also from other places to make sure that their Torah reading was medakdek, was perfect. perfect. And to this day, that's the, the shtick there. And that's how we know the music. Now, the other thing you mentioned was about the new. Yes, the, yes, the, the infusion of the new. Listen. As I said, a culture has to grow. The liturgy that we have, if we don't want to change it to limericks, and hi God, how you doing? But man, I made Sarkar, That goes with hi God, how you doing? <laughs> that does not go with out of the depths of despair and despondency. And there are a hundred compositions that do, of the, all different styles. So the, my answer to that is, the liturgy is high art. I mean, our liturgy is high art. It isn't folk poetry. There are parts of it that no one understands. I defy anyone to explain certain of the Pio team. Yeah, of course, they're very yeah. difficult. Yeah. So future generations should not be written off. Uh, Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, he said, he, the question came up about H.L. Mencken's uh, uh, statement that you, nobody ever went broke underestimating the stupidity of the American people, public. And in that context, Truman said, yeah, but sooner or later, they wise up. <laughs> and this is going to happen with the next generation. It's already happening in classical music. This upswing has already started 10 years ago. And I'm not saying that we should have only one type. First, because I don't think we should have only one type. I don't want to sing the same thing every week, week to week. And Bach didn't do the same cantata one week right. after the next. But to write off high culture liturgical music or high culture music to represent our liturgy in favor of pop, which isn't even good pop, but even if it would be great pop, I wouldn't be for is making a mistake if the reason is, quote, to pack them in. Somebody said to me this morning, well, my synagogue's in such and such a place, we, and he mentioned things we do there that, he said, but it packs the people in. You know what I said to him? Why don't you have Madonna come? <laughs> You'll pack the people in. On that note, I'm going to say that this was far and away the most bully pulpit of the bully pulpit podcasts, and it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking it's the time. It's good to talk to you, too. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.